0: and the future is completely within our control.
1: We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Burke here with the Growth Show, and I'm joined by Charlene Lee, who's the founder and CEO of the Altimeter Group, the author of best-selling books including Open Leadership, Grandswell, and most recently, The Engaged Leader. Her most recent book on how leaders can use digital forums to better engage and impact their teams. Charlene is named one of the most 100 creative people in business, one of the most influential women in technology, and has appeared on countless media outlets. A graduate of both Harvard undergrad and HBS, Charlene is a true innovator in tech, so we're very lucky to have her here with us today. Charlene, thanks for being with us here on The Growth Show. Thank you for having me on the show. Fantastic. So, at its core, this show is about growth, and your most recent book is all about how leaders can grow and adapt. What do you think is the biggest misconception leaders have about growth? And how do you recommend leaders grow personally and professionally to impact their organizations? Great question. I think the biggest misconception around growth is that it's painful, it's
0: hard, and that's not very fun in some ways. And I think um, the most sustainable type of growth, because I'm thinking about growth, not just this blip that you can have, but if you can continually grow And hopefully the growth actually accelerates rather than slows down. So it's exponential growth at some point. That's extremely fun. And the the, the question becomes, how do you energize that? How do you spark it as a leader? And I think people often say, I've got it. I'm not the creative type. I'm not the person who's going to come up with that innovation. And what I find so fascinating are companies who grow, who don't really do anything different, but they do it better. They do it with greater purpose and sense and mission. And I think for leaders to connect with that can be an incredible way to create that spark.
1: So you said something really interesting, which is they do it better. You work with some of the top Fortune 100 brands in the world. What do those organizations have in common as it relates to growth? And what do you see as commonalities and in leaders in those organizations with what they actually do better?
0: I always like to say you could have the greatest strategy in the world, but if you don't have the great culture to execute that strategy, you will lose. So culture eats strategy for breakfast every single day. So if you have a great strategy, but you don't have the culture to execute it, you're going to be toast. And so the companies that do it better have better cultures. I find. They have better leadership. They have better alignment around what makes them tick. And it's not to say a good culture versus a bad culture. What is that? It just means that the culture is aligned, that people know what the purpose and mission and culture is, how we're going to accomplish that, how we get work done. So you can have a very competitive culture, and that could be just perfect for that culture. Can, another one could be all oh, Kuba, yeah, and it'll work for that group. I don't care what the culture looks like, but everybody needs to be aligned around it.
1: Absolutely. I'm clearly very biased given that I run our culture team, but I I happen to agree. Uh, One of the things you tweeted recently, which I really liked, was uh, Tim Cook's quote that the most diverse teams will build the best product. How does diversity kind of dovetail with that approach to culture? And how do you think uh, best in class companies are prioritizing diversity as part of their recruiting and retention strategy?
0: One of the biggest problems with companies is that you you tend to follow the groupthink. And what diversity does is it keeps you out of that rut of what is it that we think is best? Well, it's whatever we think is best, and you have only one perspective or two or three versus hundreds or thousands. You get such better, they're all data points in the end, and you know you have better assurances of making the right decisions if more data points. What diversity does is give you data points and different perspectives. It's not to say that it's the only perspective or you have to incorporate all of them but you can take those into consideration. And so I I think the major thing that Tim realizes is that his customer base is extremely diverse. So how do you understand the needs and opportunities of someone who's very old or very young, very rich, very poor, all of these extremes, versus the lowest common denominator of whoever it is that you happen to have as employees think is best. So being able to walk in the shoes of your customers, live them, be them, and having that voice inside the company just shortcuts that that entire understanding of what that customer journey looks like.
1: And on that specific point, who is an organization or leader that we could point to who's doing a really great job of it, who's someone all of us can aspire to on that front?
0: Um, I think Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook and Ginny Ramady at IBM, two great women leaders uh, who have just great points of view of thinking about diversity and how to include different voices and making sure that they're amplified. Both leaders of tech companies that have always struggled with diversity. But usually when I talk to diversity with leaders, the first thing they say is, I so how, how are your diversity efforts going? And the first thing they go is, oh, and the size, or the It's really hard. You don't get that from Cheryl. You don't get that from Jenny. They go right into it. Like, this is what we're doing, and it is a top priority, and this is how we're living that value of valuing diversity and diversity of voices.
1: Absolutely. Both of those women are uh, relatively engaged in digital media, sort of externally facing. One of the things we hear from CEOs on a regular basis, given that we're a marketing software company at HubSpot, is I can't tweet, I can't possibly tweet the risk is too great. And I think one of the things you talk a lot about in The Engaged Leader is know that you have something authentic and important to say. How do you advise the CEOs you work with on having an authentic voice online and what that can look like?
0: Well, it's interesting because I opened the book with Ginny Romady, who does not tweet. She has a Twitter account, uses it to listen so people can reply to her. So she's part of the conversation, but she does not tweet because strategically it doesn't fit with her. I had a chance to talk with her a few weeks ago and I go, tell me more about that again. And she goes, you know, if you look at it, there's so many things, but I cannot be authentic in that channel. I do not feel that I can put my best foot forward and focus on that and use it to the best of my ability, I can be authentic in these other channels, which are much more aligned with the kind of things I want to do. So she's thinking very strategically. I have so much respect for a leader who says, I don't tweet because of reason A, B, C, and D, not because I don't get it. I don't understand it or is, you know, without having really explored it because it's, I think you have to have a plan and intention on it. Otherwise, how can you be respectful of your customers, your partners, and employees? They're there. And it's like you're saying, come and knock on my door, come and call me, but I'm not going to answer that call.
1: Because I just haven't
0: bothered to figure out if this is the right medium for
1: me. Absolutely. So on the exact opposite side of the spectrum, uh, Sheryl Sandberg's post about losing her husband after she came back to work was arguably one of the most moving social media posts in sort of recent memory. Does leadership need to get more personal? Do you think people reacted? What do you think people's reaction was? And what was the overall commentary you got from her sharing? What was inherently a personal event, um, but in such a public way?
0: Leadership is personal. We develop bonds with people, not just because we talk about things at work, but because we get to know each other as people. I mean, business is personal, so why wouldn't you talk about that, The share of things like that? The people you work closely with, they know your kids. They know what concerns you, what your hobbies are. They know what interests you are, what foods you hate. They know those things, and it's part of what, how they draw connections with you. And if that relationship is going to be built on that, how would you build that in a digital way? So my point is, an engaged leader in this day and age, you have to be digital because that's how we establish relationships. And we have cut off this entire side of our leadership ability to connect with people if we don't use these digital tools. The question becomes, how do you establish relationships through these digital tools from a leadership perspective? I've talked to quite a few leaders now who So you know, I use LinkedIn and Facebook, but I use it in a personal way. It's really intimidating. How do I think about that from a leadership perspective? There are very few role models who can express, how do I be a leader and get leadership things done through this channel? And I I think in many ways, looking to young people, the millennials for this is not the answer because they use it personally. They don't know how to lead. They're still very early in their journey. So I had to go for the book. I looked at very established leaders, you know, leaders at the very top who worry about these kinds of issues. Like, what if I tweet and get myself in trouble?
1: Sure.
0: And uh, for the most part, they every day they are speaking on behalf of the company. They know what they can and cannot say. And I say you got to trust your gut as a leader and have confidence in the fact that you know what it means to lead. Now you got to lead through these digital channels. That's a lot. I'd rather teach a great leader how to use a digital channel than somebody who knows how to use digital how to be a great leader. One, The first one's a lot easier.
1: Absolutely, I think that's a great point. Uh, so you set a really unique example by uh, being a founder and CEO at Altimeter but also finding time to write. So most folks cannot effectively balance being a CEO and creating content and you've managed to create multiple best-selling books doing it. How do you balance, talk to us a little bit about how you work on a day-to-day basis and how you balance um, day-to-day growth and kind of hands-on with the org and creating content that allows your thought leadership and your brand both personally and at an altimeter to scale.
0: There's no such thing as balance either in this or with personal and work because um, I get asked about that too because I'm a working mom too as well. I just constantly say that it is a series of less than optimal um, compromises <laughs> and, and I'm constantly compromised how much I can focus on work and driving the business on how much I can focus on the leadership. And ideally, the two come together, but I can't make it work all the time. So it is a constant juggling. There is no simple solution. I used to have a blog that was called Midnight Musings, because that's when I would write. I would write at midnight, because that was the only time I had the space and energy between work and people having demands there, and then coming home and working demands. It was my third shift. Um, But... I can't do that anymore. Maybe it's because of age or something. So I actually, uh, one of the things I do, I was just talking to Elijah before on this, uh, we at at Altimeter try to have all of our meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And that leaves Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays open for thinking time, work time. Because in order to write, I need about an hour to two hours to get into it. Then I'm into it for another three to four hours. And then I'm exhausted. I can't do anything else. So I need that long stretch of time. I'll be very transparent also, I work with writers. I, uh, when I wrote The Engaged Theater, I worked with a wonderful writer and editor who was my editor for Groundswell. And uh, she and I have worked together a very long time. It was my ideas, we outlined, she would help me with the first draft, and we'd pass drafts back and forth. The key thing here is, if you feel like you have to write every single word and not realize that this is writing is always a collaboration with you and editors and writers and researchers, and for me, getting down that first draft is the slowest part. So I partner with people. I've, I've partnered with people on every single one of my books, either as co-authors or writers or other people, to get that first draft done.
1: Absolutely. So speaking of collaboration, how have you built your team? How do you think about hiring and recruiting at Altimeter, and how do you advise uh, leaders of high-growth organizations to do the same?
0: Uh, we have the first screening interview, and the very first thing we ask you was know, just like, tell us something about us and tell us what your values are. You know, and you know our values. We're going to ask you about it. how would you demonstrate? How do how do these values speak to you? Mm-hmm. And if they can't talk about that in an authentic way and have some way of even knowing that values are important, they don't pass that first screen. And then the second thing we do, you know, the skill checks, the background checks, but we do practical exams for every single position. So this is not just based on. Let's just talk. It's a skill-based practical set. Even our COO had to write out a project plan for how she would execute something, take a bunch of materials, and synthesize it into a plan. Because I wanted to see how she worked, how she thought. There's no right answer, but there's nothing like a practical exam to get to skill. So every single person has a practical exam.
1: That's so interesting. And on the values front, how do you push the organization so that um, you're not screening for sameness? So in other words, if I just think that you and I really connect because we're both super passionate about X value, that sort of thing, how do you make sure that that process is inherently solving against sameness for diverse teams?
0: Values isn't about saying that you like something or believe in it. It's about living them and when they helped you through a hard point. So when did you have an issue where integrity was challenged? When did, when was it hard to amplify? When did you really feel like you were not empowered and you had to go do things? So give us instances that show that you lived your values, live these values that we have, because uh, you may express them in a different way. And we're not looking for did you check six out of the seven, right? Mm-hmm. It's really how well have you experienced these, and can you talk about it? what does integrity mean to you? And we, you know, integrity for us, the definition of it is. Do we have the communications in the relationship so that we can live in an integrity with each other? If there's anything left unsaid between us, we are not living in integrity. If you're holding back a piece of feedback because I don't want to hurt your feelings and everything, that's not living in integrity. Yep. So those really are. Well it's really hard to you know, to parse those things out.
1: So I think you uh, said something really important earlier, which was that it's not always the case of just executives adapting to how millennials do social media. With that said, one of the great insights in your book is that the power dynamic of being a leader has fundamentally changed. Talk about how um, folks who have been managing people for, for many years can deal with the fact that now uh, millennials or new folks to the workforce have, are more empowered than ever, and what does that look like, and how can leaders adapt?
0: Well, there's a reason why I think uh, the engagement numbers are so low because I wonder if leaders really want empowered employees. Fundamental question. Empowered employees are kind of a pain Mm -hmm. to manage because they are constantly questioning you. They're engaged in their work. And oftentimes when I talk to these managers, they go, you know, these millennials, they ask way too many questions. Mm -hmm. Um, They're demanding too many things. They want to know. They think it's very self-centered In reality, I think these millennials are saying, I want to bring the best of me forward into the work. They're incredibly dedicated. And it's translated as something different. So I think of leaders who traditionally have said, you know, I put up and shut up for all these years to get to where I am today. You have to pay those dues also. That doesn't fly anymore. Because a top power dynamic says, I want you to come to the level where I am. And the relationship I want with my managers as a millennial is one as a peer. You're my coach. We're going to have a dialogue and talk about how we're going to accomplish this versus you're going to be my boss and tell me exactly how I'm going to do it. And If I don't do it and shut up and put out, then I don't have a job. And millennials, frankly, have a choice. They can work for a boss who's enlightened and engaged in this way, want to engage with them, or they can, you know, work for a boss who doesn't think that way. And guess what? They're going to leave and go look for a boss who thinks in a much more engaged way.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. So on the flip side of millennials, uh, age is obviously a frequent topic of conversation, not just in the Valley, but also just in tech in general. You were recently named to a 40 over 40 list, which I think is like the coolest thing ever, um, that we're celebrating folks who aren't just uh, you know on the younger end of the spectrum, but also folks who are experienced leaders at the top of their game. Talk to me about the role of age in tech and how we match experience with encouraging young leaders to kind of get off the sidelines and into the game.
0: Yeah, so first of all, there is tremendous ageism. In tech and in business, but and especially for women, really really hard. Which is why the Women Forty Over Forty is such an important list. I'm really honored to be on it. Um, so I'll be very transparent. I'm 49. Um, I can kind of get away because I look a lot younger than that with what my age is. But I think the things that the, the interviews I've had after uh, after being into that list is like, what has experience and age allowed you to do? How am I still inspired and innovative in a way that I wasn't when I was 25? Mm-hmm. I think when I was 25, I was a lot more optimistic, and I thought I could conquer the world, right? I'm much more realistic now, but I actually have the means to be able to conquer the world now, Mm -hmm. because I know what to do. Whereas 25, I was just kind of flailing at the edges, making a ton of mistakes, going and wasting a lot of energy trying to figure out how to do this. So the experience has taught me what's working, what's not. I may lack some of the energy, that I had when I was 25, but I can be a lot more effective now because of all the mistakes I've made, I won't make them again. Uh, so experience is what you get when you don't get what you want, and I have a lot of experience <laughs> at this point.
1: <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. You said something when we spoke before we started the show uh, that really resonated with me, which is one of the questions that all of us as leaders get frequently from, especially from millennials, but from younger employees generally, is how do I manage my career? And you talked about kind of how people should think about investing in career growth. How do you advise people to think about their own careers and what steps should everyone be taking, regardless of what stage they're they're at in their career at the moment, um, to really prioritize what's important to them and kind of match their values with where their career is heading?
0: I think the most important asset you will ever manage in your life is your career and yet people spend more time managing their music collection than they do their career so let's think about how you invest your time you have to actively think about what your career looks like what you are doing today what are the gaps and where you want to be and i think an 18 month time period of saying how will you develop your career what are the steps you would take for the next 18 months is a really good time frame because it's far enough that you can think strategically But yet short enough that you can be very action-oriented because 18 months is about how much time it takes to learn a new job and then to master it. Six months to learn it, 12 months to actually master it. At that point, most people who are ambitious in their career say, I need a new learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what is your next learning opportunity going to be? Not your next position, Mm -hmm. but the next kind of environment which will put you in the right place where you can learn and grow along your career path. That takes a lot of time and energy so I would routinely sit down with career advisors, do assessments, um, figure out what it looks like, what are my core strengths and my interests and my skills, and very importantly, my values. I stayed at Forrester Research for almost 10 years doing this, because every 18 months I'm like, oh my goodness, I should go start do a startup or something else, and I realized, with my values, it wasn't about making money. It wasn't about you know being in a high-growth organization. It is all about influence. That is what drives me, influence and impact, having that aha moment in people. And there was no better way for me to do that at the time than being an analyst, and I continue to do that. So knowing what drives me makes me feel compelled and excited every day to come to work. It's not money. It's not the recognition. It's about the impact and the influence.
1: Absolutely. So knowing that Altimeter and you personally are influencing so many organizations and how they operate, what's the best advice you have for someone who's trying to build and grow how they influence others? What's the secret to influence? Helping other people. It is
0: not about being influential. You become influential when you help other people. And they tell other people, you should read this. It'll be really helpful to you. Influence only comes when you make a difference. And, and I like to think that the, the way that we approach our research and the things that we do is always, always, with somebody with a huge pain point. So we spend a huge amount of time looking at journeys and understanding what pain points are. We're constantly asking people, what should we be researching? What are the questions that you have? And we ask that in every single interaction. Like, what are you curious about? What are you not seeing answered out there? that we can help with our research. And I think having that approach and then being very pragmatically oriented towards, let's figure out how to actually solve that problem identify it, give it a name, give it a framework, and then what are some recommendations? That is the only way I know, and I've always done that. I've never counted how many followers I get, how many retweets I get. That is not the measure of success. The measure of success is when somebody comes up to me with my book and it's dog-eared and it's footnoted and highlighted. That to me says, somebody found something useful here.
1: Absolutely, I love that analogy. Uh, So when you think about um, kind of what growth looks like for you looking forward, you have a lot of accomplishments on your list. What are you most proud of?
0: I am most proud of, hmm, I I remember one moment when I was uh, at the World Business Forum giving a speech. It was in uh, Radio City Music Hall. And, you know, I'm a musician trend. I always wanted to, like, play and perform. Okay, this is the closest I was ever going to get to being on Broadway. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. close to it.
1: Hey, you never know. <laughs> you You're never still know, yet.
0: so I might still pursue that. Um, but for me, again, that was a moment that said, wow, it really, my, my ideas have gotten to the point where this incredible audience of business leaders really want to hear what I have to say. And that was an aha moment for me. And I think for them to be able to talk for the first time in mass about the whole idea of open leadership. This is back in 2010. And it was a transition point for me from just being a tech analyst to being somebody thinking about leadership and strategy. Because up until then, I was a tech analyst talking about social media and social business. Now I'm thinking about how do companies really transform themselves? How do we lead in a very different way? So that was a turning point and a marker for me.
1: That's really neat. Uh, what's the antithesis of growth? What do you see people making mistakes and missteps and how do you know when something's kind of wrong there?
0: You know, I, I talk about in the book how if you know you are doing this well, you're being engaged a little when your palms are sweating, your stomach is churning. Growth is not easy. Growth is something that um, requires pain. Transformation is not an easy process. Okay. And my sense is that sometimes we run out of energy. We just don't have the energy for growth. And it stopped, it, it, you slow down your growth and eventually you stagnate. Mm-hmm. And so the key thing that keeps you from doing that is curiosity. If we can maintain our curiosity about the fact that there is something that's unknown and I want to find that answer, that begins you on that journey for growth if you can just always have that sense of curiosity. So I, I, I love talking about millennials, but I think in many ways, we talk about generation C as being connected. I think it's something else. It's also generation curiosity. It is more of a mindset. So I see some digital leaders who are extremely involved in, in agile, in this. my favorite is Bill Marriott. He's like, I think, 83. Yep. He doesn't type, and he blogs all the time. He's not letting the fact that he cannot use a computer stop him from engaging he is connected, you know, he's, he's generation C in terms of curious and connected.
1: I think that's a great example. We have a a program internally called always be growing and it's uh, designed entirely so that people stay curious and stay innovative. And I think one of the things uh, that's typically an adjustment for people when they join HubSpot is we are definitely a good enough is never is sort of organization where it's always, how can you improve this? How can we innovate on how can we prevent the pothole moving forward? And it's jarring for people coming in who aren't used to that speed. And frankly, that that pressure, there are sometimes when you ship something and you just want it to be kind of done and over with. And so I think uh, I think that's really good and important insight. Um, You mentioned talking about transparency and kind of the role that that plays. Talk a little bit about how social media has changed, the extent to which leaders are in the public eye all the time, and how we can think as leaders about using that to our advantage versus a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I think the transparency has always been there, just to different levels and degree. And, And frankly, I think in the same vein as privacy, you control a lot of what you will be transparent, what you will be authentic about, and what you will be private about. Um, I have the this, this sense of being very authentic and transparent. You will not find the names of my kids anywhere. I patrol it. I make sure it's done. It's not out there. They have been trained not to use their real names. And so I'm constantly monitoring that. So knowing what I will be transparent about, what I will be authentic about, what I will keep things private, in the end, the only things that are truly private are the things you never share. So I think every organization and every leader needs to think through very strategically, what will I share that will make a difference to my leadership goals? And more importantly, what are the stories I will tell? And we know that stories move people because they remember them. Every strategy in the end is a story. It's a strategy that says, we're here today, we're going on this journey to get to that point tomorrow. People remember stories. And then more emotional stories are the ones that people remember. So when I think about authentic and transparent, being human, what does that mean? Tell a really good story. and Tell it as if you were sitting here and having a conversation with me. And what digital has done, it has removed the cost of communication. It's taken it down. It's frictionless. So we still see leaders saying, oh, I have to make this perfect. No, you don't. Because you can do this every day if you wanted to. And that removes the need to be perfect.
1: Absolutely. So, closing things out, uh, you just just published your new book. You've been super successful at Altimeter. What's the next chapter in your story? I think I have about five more books written, you know, inside of me. Awesome.
0: I, I'm inspired by Peter Drucker, who wrote two thirds of his books after he was 65. Okay. I'm like, oh, <laughs> not even there yet. So. I I look forward to continuing to ask all these great questions. I don't know what some of these questions are going to be. I have an idea what my next book and the next two books potentially might be about, so I'm working on both ideas to see which one comes up. I just continue to want to do that, to ask the questions, to maintain curiosity and to continue to grow, uh, because it's what drives me. People ask, so when are you gonna think you're gonna retire? I'm like, why would I want to retire? I'm having so much fun. Uh, So I see I, I don't see any end to doing this. The form and function of how I do it may change with the times, but I will always remain, you know, hopefully influential and in creating great content that helps people.
1: Charlene, it's obvious why you're such a great storyteller and why you've been so successful in helping so many companies grow. Uh, if you have not read The Engage Leader, I highly suggest that you do so. And Charlene, thanks so much for joining us.